grace basically gives you the ability of God to build the kingdom on the earth. Right. We can't build the kingdom of God through personality, intellect, through our own physical strength. Might say I'm understudy, might say I'm over the top, but there's like no clean water, but soda pop is overstocked. They say amazing grace. So, I have an irrational, unjustified prejudice against Canadian actors. Mostly celebrities, but really Canadian actors in general. I've always had it. It goes something like this. I'd like a particular actor. Everybody does. They are often part of the cultural zeitgeist due to a much-loved role that they play on TV or film. They are famous. They are loved by America. Their popularity makes them seem as American as apple pie or the flag or oversized portions at chain restaurants. Then, at some point, during this love fest, I am reading something about them or I see them in an interview, And at that point, they reveal that they are Canadian. And I feel a red, hot flash of anger, actual anger, due to this feeling of being hoodwinked or bamboozled. And you'd be surprised. This happens frequently because there are a lot of famous actors who are Canadian. They're everywhere in this country. I know what this is sounding like. Stay with me, okay? So I feel this anger, right? Or... Disappointment. It's really disappointment and frustration or a feeling of injustice because they took jobs away from American actors, but they blend in, unlike English actors who take all our jobs but have accents, so at least we know. With Canadian actors, we can't tell unless you listen really close for how they pronounce out and about. It's similar to how frustrating it is that famous actors take all the voiceover work in animated films. Like, like back in the day, it didn't always have to be a famous person. Remember Jody Benson as Ariel? Some of you might. Shout out to my musical theater folks out there. But most of you don't. It didn't have to be Beyonce voicing Nala in the upcoming Lion King. It could be an unknown, talented, black voiceover actress. My friend Adrian plays Nala on Broadway. She could have done it, but no, she doesn't get that opportunity. Beyonce gets it. Like she needs more to do. Like she needs more exposure. Like she needs more money. And blah, 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 box office, I call malarkey because the original Little Mermaid didn't have any stars in it, and that was a huge hit. (sighs) Back to Canadians. For me, it started with Michael J. Fox. Who doesn't love Michael J. Fox? Alex P. Keaton, family ties. My mother loved Alex P. Keaton. Everybody did. He was a freaking Trump supporter in training, and he was embraced by America. Michael J. Fox? is Canadian. Yep. He has dual citizenship. He tells the story of how he found out he was cast as Alex P. Keaton. He was poor and and struggling and had no money and he had to take the call in a phone booth and it's the call that changed his life, which is a great story, but all I could think when I heard it was, you took that role from an American actor, Michael J. Fox, but I love you. Curses, curses, foiled again. Now, clearly, I have a problem. Yes, I'm talking about a preference I have based on a bias that is based on a sense of entitlement. I have randomly positioned American actors on some pedestal. I have decided that they deserve something more than someone else strictly because the other person 
is from somewhere else. Now, while this unfound preference of mine isn't based in race, the color of one's skin, it certainly is adjacent to racist ideology, right? Now, I realize now that the roles I decided were stolen from American actors were never roles for American actors. They were just roles, up for grabs. It's a good philosophy for actors to have this in general. You know, the whole, it wasn't my role, it never was, I can let it go attitude. You know, Shonda Rhimes, she has a quote, and apparently I'll be quoting Shonda Rhimes all the time in this podcast. Um, and it goes, now I know what I did not know then. At this level, and she's talking about the level of like the types of actors that audition for her projects. At this level, everyone is a great actor. There are no bad actors. There are just actors who do not fit your vision. The actor was just not the key that fit the lock that turned the story in my brain. Can't dispute that, right? Has nothing to do with us, right? Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Okay, now, let's go back to the definition of my unfiltered resentment of Canadian actors. Preference based on a bias that's based on a sense of entitlement. Let's apply that definition to racism and add a little bit more to the equation. Preference based on a bias plus power and the leveraging of that power to benefit some and not others. So in the history of the United States, it is white people who have leveraged power in this way, on a mass scale. This is why you may have heard black people can be prejudiced, but they cannot be racist, because in the power structure, they are not the people who have continuously and repeatedly leveraged power to benefit themselves over others. Now, in the case of my unfounded bias against Canadian actors, and let me emphasize, it isn't Canadians overall. It is strictly Canadian actors. And also, I have sought help on this and have come a long way. Now I only feel this way toward Canadian singers. I just. Regardless of how I feel about Canadian performers, I don't, nor have I ever done anything to withhold or harm a Canadian actor. I don't hold American actor-only auditions. I don't campaign so that Canadian actors can't act in the U.S. I don't ask actors if they are Canadian and if they are, refuse to work with them, or strain my ears when I first meet an actor to parse out if they have an accent so I can judge accordingly. I have a failure in my thinking that I realize is my problem and no one else's. Mostly, I keep it to myself. I don't spread hate Canadian actors propaganda. I keep myself in check, and I continue to enjoy and love actors even after I find out they are Canadian. I move on with my life. Everyone has bias. Bias is simply preference. It's what we do with the bias that matters. You dig? Now, let's take a deeper look into the word racist. Here's the Webster definition. Now, a person who shows or feels discrimination or prejudice against people of other races or believes that a particular race is superior to another. Adjective. Showing or feeling discrimination or prejudice against people of other races or believing that a particular race is superior to another. So, as a noun, second half of the definition. The belief that a particular race is superior to another. Now, 360 view. Let's take a look at the 
infrastructure of this country, how it was built, the very foundation of it is based on the false notion that white people are superior because stolen land, because slavery, because Jim Crow laws, because internment camps. And let's not forget the actual invention of white people. That's right. It's made up. So I highly recommend a, a game-changing book called Birth of a White Nation by Jacqueline Battalora. Um, I actually had her at a, on a, as a guest on my previous podcast, Race Bait, um, and it, it was a mind-bender and a mind-blower. And the book is about the ways in which white people were created, created by American law, made up. And so this is what's from the author's website about the book. This is how it's described. The moment when white people, as a separate and distinct group of humanity, were invented through legislation and the enforcement of laws. It explains how the creation of this distinction divided laborers and ultimately served the interests of the elite. It also examines how foundational law and policy were used to institutionalize the practice of white people holding positions of power. So there it is. Like I said, this book blew my mind uh, because it is painstakingly researched proof that race is made up entirely out of whole cloth and was weaponized in order to hold power and suppress black people. And see. But there's more. I am laying all this out because I am on a personal mission to change the conversation around the word racist. And uh, there's another book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, a white woman. Also a book called Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack by Peggy McIntosh, um, another white woman. And I, I'm, I'm saying this because I want to call in and, and call attention to the fact that, you know, white people are in this conversation about privilege, articulating it in a way that is difficult to hear sometimes, but really crucial. And in, in that case, I think the messenger is really important. So in my opinion, both are required reading for any white person who wants to be anti-racist and recommended reading for any black person or person of color who wants to add to their toolbox when they are trying to speak about this topic. So D'Angelo's book, pushes people to own that they are racist solely based on the fact that they were born in the United States of America and are white. Period. There's no if, ands, or buts about it. Stay with me now, because this is when I think hearts start to palpitate and the discomfort grows because nobody wants to be called a racist. I am rallying for a shift in thinking, because collectively we must get very clear and begin to distinguish between someone who is racist and someone who is a white supremacist. And the fact that white people are a product of privilege based solely on the color of their skin, and there are seen and unseen advantages that they have benefited from, that piece of this conversation has to be a given, right? You got to get over it. The distinction between racism and white supremacy, racist and white supremacist, and the understanding of the nuances is crucial in the fight against the seething white supremacist in the White House. And if anybody wants to be of any use, they have got to get over this hump and stop clinging to this belief that they aren't racist. White folks, being called a racist is not the worst thing you can be called. It is simply a fact. 
Okay, so back to my irrational feelings about Canadian actors. Americans weren't entitled to those roles, just like white people shouldn't be entitled to the advantages they have just because they are white. Okay, so a little bit more about being racist if you are white. <laughs> what fun, right? Uh, but this is crucial, and this is the bitter pill. This is where you are complicit. So you are racist because you benefit on a daily basis from the advantages given to you due to the color of your skin. That's the given. You are complicit because you don't on a daily basis protest the advantages, reject them, or give up the advantages so others can benefit. Why? Because it works for you. And that doesn't mean you don't do it sometimes or even frequently, but unless you do it all the time, you are complicit. So deep down inside, your default is that you believe you are superior to continually allow yourself to benefit from it. It's what you have been taught from the day you were born. So if you can accept that, right, and accept it within the confines of, you know, if it's something that, that you were taught from the day you were born, you don't blame children for how they were brought up, right? You hold adults accountable if they aren't able to unlearn what they might have learned as children. A child who is abused grows up possibly to be an abusive adult, but then that adult has to be accountable for that, right? And hopefully through healing and therapy and um, whatever they need to do, they don't repeat the behavior. Well, the point in all this is, if we all sort of own this idea that it's an indoctrination of sorts and something that you learn from the day you were born, as a child, your learning it is not your fault, right? And even as adults, it's not your fault. It's what you do with it, though. How you hold yourself accountable, that's what matters. White guilt happens when you realize that this inequity, right, is unfair, but you still take the benefits and don't ever challenge them. But then you feel bad about it, like you beat yourself up over it, but you don't change it. My mother used to say that guilt is a useless emotion, uh, and I, I think white guilt is a useless emotion because it keeps a person stuck in the feeling bad, but not in becoming part of the solution. Okay, so. White supremacist. Here's the Webster definition. A person who believes that the white race is inherently superior to other races and that white people should have control over people of other races. Now, there's the difference. The belief, conscious or unconscious, of superiority is based in racism. The desire and belief that white people should control the other races, that is supremacy. Right? And let's take it one step further. Uh, the desire, the belief, and then the action, right? The plan to do that. May I introduce to you George Wallace, the 45th governor of Alabama? So you may have heard of this quote uh, I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. Yep, he said that. Segregation now, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And no, he didn't say to his drinking buddies 
It wasn't overheard and then spread that he said that. The guy said it at the podium during his inaugural address. The newly elected governor, who was a Democrat, by the way, and you know, someday we can unpack how far-right conservatives like to throw around that Democrats started the KKK, and yes, and then you, when you unpack it, you realize it's a long story. Anyways, we'll talk about that someday. Uh, but anyways, this governor, at his inauguration, was throwing down the gauntlet and in his position of power professed his agenda. To quote NPR.org, many of his followers in the crowd wore white flowers, which were meant to symbolize their commitment to white supremacy. So George Wallace was a white supremacist, and he got himself in a position of power to implement supremacist policies. This was in 1963. Isn't that adorable? Okay, so is it possible to be racist but not be a white supremacist? Why, yes, Virginia, it is. LBJ was a card-carrying racist, but he designed the Great Society, legislation to expand civil rights, public broadcasting, Medicare, Medicaid. He, he signed the civil rights bills, civil rights bills that banned racial discrimination in public facilities, workplace, and housing. He passed the Voting Rights Act and Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965. So there you have it, right? Even though he had these personal beliefs, he wasn't going to use his power to implement policies. In fact, he did the opposite. It's a real example how you can hold two thoughts in your head at one time. You know, like he was literally integral to passing the Civil Rights Act, yet he would refer to it behind closed doors as the N-word bill. Mm-hmm. Can you be a white supremacist and not be a racist? Nope. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly. All of us uphold supremacy, by the way, even when some of us don't benefit from it. I'm aware of the ways in which I uphold supremacy, having grown up in an all-white suburb, and some of it was for my own survival, uh, and I have to fight my instinct to uphold supremacy every day. That's the power of supremacy. The, the power comes from its longevity and the fact that it is not challenged every second of the day, and too many people are too comfortable with the way it serves them. For example, the tale of two babysitters. So I'm going to sort of lay out a, a tale for you and then ask you at the end what um, you would do. So let's say you are going out of town and you need a babysitter to watch your kids for two full, full days, right? So two full work days. Um, and a babysitter's name is shared to a listserv you're on and you contact the babysitter and arrange an interview. In the interim, um, another acquaintance or an acquaintance um, highly recommends a babysitter that has watched her kids and is available over the summer. So you reach out to her too. The first babysitter comes over and she's outgoing, mature, smart, engaging, talkative. She's crazy smart and ambitious. Turns out her parents are friends with a couple you have known for years. The babysitter is willing to take your kids anywhere they want to go. Downtown, uptown, library, movies, beach, you name it. She's hired. But no, because you still want to meet the other babysitter to keep your options open. Second babysitter comes over. She is introverted, mature, smart, engaging, talkative. 
she is crazy smart and ambitious. Turns out her relative works in your kid's school district. This babysitter is willing to take your kids anywhere they want to go. Downtown, uptown, library, movies, beach, you name it. She's hired. Oh, wait, you can't have two babysitters. So the first babysitter's outgoing nature kind of matches the sort of ideal of what a babysitter should be, right? Um, kind of Mary Poppins type outgoing, although clearly Mary Poppins was a psychotic, so I've never really understood that story. Anyway, the second babysitter is clearly qualified, but her introverted nature doesn't quite match your, again, this cultural idea of what a babysitter should be. One final detail. The first babysitter, the outgoing one, is white. The second babysitter, the more introverted one, is black. Who do you choose? If you choose the white babysitter, why do you choose her? Is it because she's the status quo? It's what you're used to? It's, you know, she's outgoing? And is that quality really better than an introverted quality? Why is it better? You know, is this an opportunity to break the standard? Too often when we stay with the status quo, that's how we maintain it. Is there a benefit to hiring the second babysitter? So, you know, your children, if they are white, can be um, exposed to some diversity. What is there for your kids if they are black or brown if you hire the second? Here's what I did. Yes, 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 that wasn't a hypothetical. Babysitter one did make me feel slightly more confident in leaving the girls for two full days because her outgoing nature made me kind of feel better about them going all over the city. I felt, just felt like this girl might lean into situations a little more readily. Um, but it pained me because I knew in that moment I was upholding supremacy. In my case, the choice wasn't based on skin color, but it was based on my bias toward qualities that reflect what is valued in white culture. I bought into the doctrine that these qualities dictated by whiteness and patriarchy are the qualities that win over anything else. But, and this is important before you judge me, instead of sinking into guilt and self-flagellation about this choice, since then I have hired babysitter number two multiple times every chance I get, I have used her all summer, and guess what? Turns out she is a better fit for my girls anyways. You make decisions, but you can also make other decisions and push yourself and challenge yourself and be honest and precise in your choices. Anti-racist activist Ibram X. Kendi says, racism is really a set of ideas which we can argue about and change. 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 I directed a bunch of kids in a show one summer. Uh, in their original content, and one of the kids was playing a person asking for money all the time, and her line was, change, change, and she would say it over and over and over like that. Let's all say it. Change, change, change. Too much? Okay. Uh, quick sidebar on affirmative action, which might have come to mind in this little scenario I uh, just articulated. I want to emphasize that both babysitters had non-negotiable traits that were important to me in the process of hiring them. I wouldn't have hired either of them if they didn't have those traits. 
So as I decided who I wanted to give the opportunity to, I, was, I wasn't doing anyone any favors, right? The misconception about affirmative action is that the decision to hire a black person or person of color is a hand up despite a deficit that they have, right? And that's why people try to diminish someone by relegating them to the affirmative action higher status. But when affirmative action is done correctly, and, you know, it's about trying to create uh, diversity and inclusion, the black person or person of color has to have the same qualifications as their white counterparts. That, that's required. That's a given. Right? So everybody starts at the same baseline. Can a black person be racist? Let's think about this. Now, this one actually uh, is a hypothetical. I'm making this one up. So let's say we have a black teacher in a classroom, okay? And all the students, almost all the students are black. And there are some white students, yeah? And this teacher has centered the rules, the checks and balances and incentives, um, on the black students so they can succeed more and, you know, they can succeed more often and more easily than the white kids, right? Partly because, you know, these checks and balances or incentives are sort of rooted in what they already do naturally based on their culture, right? Which, if that makes sense. So a lot of the things that are deemed success in education are things that are considered successful in white culture, but not necessarily other cultures which is why some kids look like they're failing, but it's just because success in their culture is different. Yeah? So I guess in that case, like, you could argue, okay, this teacher who has the power within this environment, this small community, um, is creating the rules, has the power. So, yeah, doesn't that mean that they are being racist? But you have to sort of open up the question more because. Yes, the teacher has the power in the classroom, but who has ultimately the power outside the classroom, right? Who has the power over the teacher? Are those people white? Who's holding the highest denominator of power and can demand um, that changes be made? So, you know, again, but that's, you know, people want to cling to these, like, um, things that make them feel better about the possibility that they might consider the fact that they are racist by saying, you know, well, black people can be racist or blah, 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 blah. It's like, again, doesn't mean a black person can't be prejudiced. It just means historically it isn't black people who have set up structures and um, implemented power dynamics that benefit them and not others. So I want to talk about Joe Biden to further examine how you can uphold supremacy and how it can tip into being supremacist. So Joe Biden has come under fire because he opposed busing ordered by the Department of Education as a senator in 1974. And uh, Biden didn't oppose busing on principle. He wanted to leave it to local governments. He opposed it being mandated on a federal level. Okay? Uh, and Kamala Harris noted that his decision impeded this country's progress toward what was right and just, right? So to quote her, she said, there are moments in history where states failed to preserve the civil rights of all people. 
and then cited the Voting Rights Act and Civil Rights Acts as example. Thank you, LBJ. So, Joe Biden was upholding supremacy in this case, right? But it goes one step further because he was in a position of power. So he was being supremacist because he was voting on policy. He was influencing the country's progress and ultimately holding progress back. Now, his motivations may not have been based on his belief that black people were inferior, but the impact was the same. From there, you can look at his record. Did he uphold supremacy or not? Did he continue to do it or not? All of this is about Trump and the conversations we are having about race right now and the fact that people try to argue that someone who does or says something racist isn't racist, which drives me nuts. If it looks like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's a duck. So that is part of why I wanted to do this episode, because if we can reframe what we think the word racist means, then everyone who is white is racist. And that's the baseline. And we can really start to look at behaviors and get engaged in changing them. Like, everyone wants to argue Nancy Pelosi isn't racist, even though she's been riding the squad for women of color in power like she's an agitated mother-in-law. And then when the women from the squad call it out, they're pulling the race card. No, they are calling a duck a duck. Nancy Pelosi is racist. Sure, whatever. Let's get past it. She's had many accomplishments. She's done many good things. I mean, obviously, Trump is racist, but the bigger problem is he is a card-carrying white supremacist. See where I'm going? Like, he's in the highest position of power, and he is uh, fighting for and pushing policy that upholds some and not others, right? But everybody's racist. And if we don't get that straight, Trump is going to get reelected. Honestly, I think he is going to get reelected. It hit me hard when I was talking with my friend Mia. And I looked at the date on my phone and said, July 16th or 16 p.m., mark my words, he's going to be reelected. And, you know, here's the thing. I knew he was going to get elected the first time. I was one of the many black people um, who wasn't surprised he got elected, was starting to dread it in the final weeks before the election, that it was in fact going to happen. It broke my heart at the same time that it was just um, what seemed like the next logical thing that was going to happen based on the way that the country was behaving at the time. And when it hit me on July 16th at 4.16 p.m. that I think it's going to happen again, I now feel like it is my job to try to get as many other people to believe it as well so we can do something. I feel like, you know, Cassandra, the, the Trojan Cirrus from Greek mythology, um, and, you know, uh, she, uh, somebody describes who she was, um, a person who uttered truth prophecies but lacking the power of persuasion was never believed. And, like, I feel like I'm seeing the future and I need to run around and warn everybody, and it feels a little crazy. And to quote Cassandra, have I missed the mark? Or like true archer, do I strike my quarry? Or am I prophet of lies, a babbler from door to door? Like, right? Like, I just want to scream it from the rooftops. This piece where we can all just like take a moment, accept what our baseline is, 
and and go from there, uh, we can really start to fight this fight, which is going to be long, hard, and brutal. Um, which brings me to a selfish call to action. So if you listen to the podcast and what you hear is useful, please amplify what I'm doing. Please like, share, rate, review, tell your friends. Because, of course, yes, my ego likes the likes and the subscribers and followers, but I can't get this message out there enough, and I need your help. Uh, the other day on Facebook, an acquaintance posted that they didn't understand why people hate Obama so much. That's literally what they said. I, I don't understand why people hate Obama so much. Is it jealousy? And my head literally exploded. It's like, they, you don't understand? How could you possibly not understand? Right? And this is like a liberal, smart acquaintance of mine. And, and, and if they don't understand that it's because Obama is black and the fact that because we had Obama, it's the reason we have Trump, then what the fuck? Like, that has to be a given, you know? Like, that just seems like willful ignorance on the part of my friend. And, and that's the type of willful ignorance that will get that man elected again. Gonna get elected again if we don't stop it from happening. And if I hear any more people, white people, black people, people of color, trying to debate over this, like, is he racist? I don't know. I mean, what he did was racist, but he's not racist or she's not racist. I mean, everything she's saying and doing is racist, but that doesn't mean she's a racist. Everybody's racist. How about this? Okay, so let's say we have a piano and the piano is a system. And if you play the keys of the piano, you are a pianist. Yes? So let's say racism is a system. And if you play the keys, you benefit from it, you follow the notes, you play the music, it means you're a racist, right? But that's it. There's no judgment there. It's just a descriptor. So I'm not judging you. Uh, I am saying to you, consider this. And no, I am on the other side of it with love. I love you. My listeners who are black and who are people of color, can we talk to our white friends and share this news and share it lovingly and ask them to consider it lovingly? Consider starting the conversation by saying, you know what? I every day have to recognize my own bias and prejudice. Would you consider your racism? All this, you know, she is, he is, are they racist, distracts from the real issue that there is a white supremacist, misogynist, likely rapist in the White House, seeking re-election. I'm going to leave with this quote from civil rights icon, Congressman John Lewis, because it is positive and I need it, and hopefully it helps you too. Do not get lost in a sea of despair. Do not become bitter or hostile. Be hopeful. Be optimistic. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble. Necessary trouble. We will find a way to make a way out of no way. All right. Get in trouble, folks. Like the Tanya's Take Facebook page. Follow Tanya's Take at Tanya's Take on Instagram. Rate and review on iTunes, subscribe on Podbean, and, and I'm just going to put it out there. Please amplify my voice if you believe in what I'm saying. Let's get loud with it. Take care, everybody.
Sweet. Yes, it is. No, it's not. This whole flock.